I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am your host, Andy Johnson. Today's episode, I am joined by Mike Manthe. Mike is the head superintendent at Midland Hills Country Club. Uh, it is in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. It is a Seth Rayner design that recently went underwent a restoration from Jim Urbina. Uh, Mike has a really super interesting story with, you know, kind of how their restoration plans changed, uh, from finding a Seth Rayner plan late in the process. Um, so we get into his career a little bit into music and, uh, and just, you know, restoring a Seth Rayner and underlooked, uh, underregarded Seth Rayner that, uh, I think, you know, should get more coverage uh, in in the Midwest as one of the uh, really good golf courses in the Midwest. So we uh, we dive into all of that. Um, this episode is brought to you by Toro. Up and down ham and egg to the list of great golf pairings. We now add the Toro Workman MDX and electrification. For more than two decades, the Workman MDX has been Superintendent's trusty sidekick a rugged utility vehicle for whatever the job. And now it's the same, except the Workman MDX Lithium is powered by Toro's proprietary hypercell lithium-ion batteries, meaning the charger's on board, ready to be connected to any standard 120-volt power outlet, whenever, wherever. Less time checking batteries and more time getting stuff done. With the same power and durability, that's another great golf pairing, a win-win. Visit toro.com golf and reach out to a local Toro distributor for more information. Now to Mike Manthe. Hey, Mike, I got to ask you, um, I, you know, when I visited Midland Hills this summer, you were, you know, in between a couple shows, I think you were leaving that night to go see the national. And I got to ask what, what's been your favorite show, uh, concert or other show, I guess that you've seen in the last year. Uh, I'm a huge Walkman fan. So the Walkman, uh, got back together after a decade off, kind of a sucker for the old, old, uh, get, get, get the band back together scenario. So saw them in, uh, in Manhattan, um, which was a blast. So that's, that's probably, uh, that's, that's the top of my list. The Nationals, the Nationals great band, but they're not a I'll probably get some slack for this, but they're not like a great live band band. I having seen the national live, I kind of agree. Like there's just, there's maybe not enough energy and maybe there, a combination of energy with older crowd <laughs> leads to like, it's kind of just a weird scene. Yeah. It's like an empty parking lot. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> um, 
the uh let me uh, with the reunion show you know getting a band back together i imagine you had some like nostalgia from your 20s huge yeah yep <laughs> i had this thing with the chili peppers i had seen them live when i was in college and then when i saw them again live and they played at the united center which was you know that's always a rough scene in chicago but i like walked away like man they they just don't have the same stuff they had then yeah did you have any of that feeling or was it better than you expected? Uh, I think the anticipation was so great that um, I think they, I think it delivered. It delivered. Yeah. Do you, is there, what's your favorite place in Minneapolis to see a show? Um, I mean, obviously the old school first Avenue is a, is a famous uh, venue, which, you know, everybody from Prince to, Chili Peppers have played before they were big. Um, the Palace Theater is, a, is got great acoustics. I mean, anything outside now, like I love how a lot of bands are trying to play outside. Our local brewery, Surly, has got an awesome outdoor outdoor venue, which is which is a blast. So I'll see any anybody anywhere, to be honest. I mean, outdoor summer music, oh, I, the best, just doesn't doesn't really get better it's uh it's like it's i just think that it's, it brings a lot of uh great memories of my younger years when i think about that um so let's talk a little bit about your profession i'm sure you wish it was uh something in music sometimes but uh but um i would love to hear i think one of the most fascinating golf course stories in the last five to ten years was you guys finding this Rainer plan yeah. out of nowhere? Yep. I'd, could you just walk, uh, tell us the story of finding this plan, how it happened, where you were in your rest, restoration plan? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's obviously, a, it was a blast to kind of make a splash in the golf market for the, the true uh, architecture enthusiasts. Um, <laughs> You know, Little Midland Hills made 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 some headlines, which was which was a blast. It was a blast for our membership. Um, it was also a blast for the process because at the time um, we had already approved a master plan with Jim Rubina, who we'd been working with for several years, and he had seen enough Rainer to know, looking at our aerials, that we we were Rainer, but we just like a lot of clubs, we didn't have proof, right? We never had a drawing of any kind. Um, our first area was 1937. We knew from our club minutes, we actually have club minutes all the way back to 1919, which is awesome. They're all, um, cataloged in books, hand typewriter. They're, they're sweet. Um, so we knew the background, but we didn't have the proof. So I would say it was like 2016. We engaged with Jim and started working on the master plan took a nice slow route to kind of set objectives and budgets. And during that process, um, probably this time of year in 2018, I was super bored in my office and I have a closet and <clears throat> I have this ceiling tile that was in there crooked. And for like a decade, I looked at this. You just ignored the crooked ceiling tile. Yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> just like the creaky yeah. door at your house, super creaky. Yeah. You just, <laughs> so anyway, you know, winters are long here. They can be. 
And uh, I was like, I'm going to just fix this. I'm not finally going to fix it. So I take my chair and I put it in my closet. And before I put the tile back, ceiling tile back, I'm like, I wonder what's up here. So I start snooping around up above the ceiling. And sure enough, I find this rolled up piece of paper. And my assistant at the my assistant had to was at his desk. And I said, Mark, you got to come look at this. I rolled it out on the carpet. And I mean, it was like, it was like finding buried treasure, right? <laughs> the first thing I looked at was the stamp on it, which was 1921. And um, it's not a Rainer. Well, we don't know if Rainer drew it, but it's a Crane and Ardway. Crane and Ardway was an irrigation um, well company from St. Paul. We think what it is, is it's drawn over a, some type of drawing or blueprint from Rainer. So um, after that came out, kind of talked to leadership at the club and said, hey, um, this doesn't change things, but this, this changes things. It changes everything. And a lot of a lot of assumptions that Jim had made that I had made um, that a lot of our long tenured members had made about certain holes and what was lost were kind of there on paper all of a sudden. Um, was that the first thing you found when you went up there? That was the only thing that was up. There. Only thing that was up there. It was the only Un- thing that was up there. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um. And that one of my follow up question is exactly what you just hit on. Yeah. I feel like there are so many clubs that don't have a plan. And what we, you know, end up having is architects that have a deep understanding of of architects, of old architects like like Jim has of Seth Rayner, um, you know, like Tom Doak has of, of an architect like Gil Hans has done in so many places end up putting back what they think was there. Yes. How did your plan that was all assumption based, like what are a couple examples uh, of it changing once the plan was there? Were there any general themes that you that that were really different? Well, I think the main one that that solidified the assumption was is that Rainer didn't use a lot of fairway bunkers here because he used the topography as the hazard, you had, there was tons of blind shots out here because the corridors were so huge. I think for people that um, I'm going to assume that the vast majority of people listening to this have never visited your property, but I would say that it was one of the revelations of my year last year was how stunning. I mean, how stunning of a property Midland Hills sits on Mm -hmm. Uh, the back nine is extraordinary land for golf, like perfectly scaled contours, like that choppy rolling irregular hills, um, which leads to amazing fairway contours, amazing fairway, natural hazards, and then tremendous green sites. And the front nine's got a little bit more severe. It's a little bit different shaped, but that's also, it's a very dramatic front nine, but the back nine I would say is just, it's out of this world for golf. It's it's one of the least talked about really good golf courses in America. Yeah, I think. Well, I appreciate that. And, and you know, 
as a superintendent, you always, from an architectural standpoint, you think about the potential of the property you take care of. And when I started here in 2010, it was covered in trees. And 2,000 trees later that have been taken out, we now have that gift to re-gift to the membership and, and reinforce what this golf course was all about and was the land. So some other things that, that maybe the plan solidified from assumption-wise is, um, for example, the road hole. Uh, we knew there was fairway bunkers um, on the outside of the dog leg. And one of our shapers, uh, Zach Vardy, um, was, Jim is like, I'm pretty sure this bunker was here, but there was no landform to find anything. And sure enough, Zach started excavating and found the original bunker sand. So that happened many times throughout the project where Jim had said, I think there was a bunker here. I think it, the bunker extended to this point. Um, and, you know, the soils don't lie. Um, if you dig down, you'll find history. You know, you'll find the history if you dig. And so those things happened several times throughout the project, and they were a blast. I mean, we had to take moments to just call everybody over to see what we found because it was, it, was, it was just so fun. Um, irrigation cisterns that were buried next to greens that we had found, you know, those are over 100 years old and they were basically intact. Um, yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff that, that happened um, just kind of built to the story that was kind of our story. You know, it's, like you said, most of your listeners have never probably even heard of Midland Hills, but uh, Jim had saw the potential in the place. And, and when we got finished, um, you know, we were to to give it back to membership, and then to to see the the reaction is it's it's been a blast. You guys did a full shutdown for the renovation. Um, how did you guys go about selling the membership over that? You you talked about it being a long term kind of sell. Um, yeah. How was that process conveyed, and and what were the big moments that? got you over the hump to get the the work done yeah i think the f the first and foremost thing that jim preached to the membership was we want to make this golf course as fun as possible and that's for everybody wasn't to make it harder it wasn't to make it easier it was to make it as fun as possible to play um with that being said, I, th I think the, the campaigning that took place was to, you know, if you have 300 members, it's hard to get them all together in one, one room. It's they all have different objectives. They all have different personal wants. They all want to hold on to something that currently they have in the golf course that they think is going to change. Um, you know, golf is an emotional sport, especially when you're very intimate with a, a property you've been at for a long time. Um, you have a certain level of ownership and change is hard. So we had to talk through all those things. I think one of the successful things we did is we broke out into kind of assigning members to talk to certain demographic parts of our membership to explain to them, you know, look, we're not going to we're not stretching out every hole. This isn't to chase the scorecard. Um, 
so we did a really good job of, of trying to group everybody into abilities, age, um, skill level, you know, enjoyment and really talk about how we're going to make it, um, make it a funner golf course. It wasn't just about architecture that came with, um, restoring that architecture came with, um, making it fun for everybody angles with the ability just to putt the ball from 60 yards out. Um, all those things we couldn't do before. Um, it was a, it was a slow process, but I, for us, we weren't in a rush. We were fortunate not to be in a rush that so we didn't have to do it out of necessity. Um, but it, it, it felt like the process, um, stalled at some point. It never did stall. It just was, there was, there was moments where you got frustrated with not feeling like you were making momentum. Um, but the, but the culture of this club was one that we hired an our, an architect who we had a, a ton of, um, trust in. He built that relationship over time and he wanted to make sure that after the project was over, he wasn't just packing up his circus and leaving town. He wanted to continue the relationship for the long term and to continue to evaluate uh, the work that we did and, and going forward with tweaks. So it was a, I think every, every restoration renovation has its cultural fit. Ours was to embrace the architecture which was Seth Rainer, which would obviously make our, uh, our property more attractable in a competitive market, but it was to really have our, our end users just have a better experience. And that's kind of how it's turned out so far. How would you say with Rainer, he's obviously become a bit of a cult hero in golf architecture over the last 10 to 15 years. How have you seen it at the local level? Probably, you know, I don't want to mischaracterize Midland Hills, but I, you know, I imagine 10 years ago, nobody talked about Midland Hills being this Rainer golf course. How have you noticed at the course level, the perception and the, the stature of your golf course change because of just the association with Seth Rainer? Yeah, that and did, wasn't, and it, did that help with the with the selling of the restoration? Um, it didn't. I would say it didn't help with the sell. It was kind of an unspoken thing that that a couple of us at the club knew or hoped that was going to happen. Um, because again, our our membership isn't isn't really concerned about accolades or recognition. Um, it's a pretty quiet, sleepy place. Um, but it it we all there was there was a small group of us that knew what the potential was and probably looking at at other examples of clubs that have gone through this what would happen on the other side um on a local level uh i think it's opened a lot of people's eyes to a few things we did our project um kind of in an untraditional sense from <clears throat> we didn't spend a massive amount of money doing it we implemented our own staff into the into the construction phase um, 
which saved us a ton of money and it, and it increased our quality control. Uh, but it also, we have, we have, now we have people that are, that are at other clubs in town that want to come see us to experience it that had zero interest in before. So it, yeah, it was kind of reaffirmation from telling kind of the naysayers that, Hey, if we do this, it's going to improve your enjoyment of the golf course, but it's also going to shed a spotlight of how cool this place really is. I feel like a lot of times I, 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 a small percentage of people can see what a course can be and being one of those and working there all the time. It has to be somewhat frustrating sometimes to hear people's negativity towards a place and, and know that it, they just don't see what it could be. And then it's got to be extraordinarily um, rewarding afterward when that whole um kind of discourse flips yeah yeah it's like a crayon on a classic painting you know you just have to convince people to take the crayon off um and that's really where kind of our project started andy was eight ten years ago we started to remove things from the property which was just the extracurricular things that typical country clubs had right your retaining walls and your flower beds and your stairs and Chilton stones and all of those things that were part of a trend. Um, we started to remove those things. And, you know, I think Urbina said it really well when he said, we know we've arrived when there's nothing left to remove. And that really resonated with me about really playing golf course on a property and promoting it in any way you can. Um, and that's kind of what we did. Um, it's just golf out there. All right, let's take a quick break and talk about the Toro Vista. Moving people around comfortably and efficiently is an important job for any golf property. And for other sprawling places like campuses, event spaces, and municipalities. The Toro Vista is perfect for all of them. Available in gas or lithium-ion battery, four, six, and eight passenger models, this powerful people mover works as hard as a truck but rides like a limousine. Sure to impress guests no matter the venue, its polar white body makes customization a breeze too. So the Vista can pull double duty as a rolling billboard while getting folks from point A to point B on point. Visit Toro.com slash golf and reach out to your local Toro distributor for more information. Now back to Mike. Is there a favorite um, hole or section of holes in terms of the transformation that every time you go out and you're, you just kind of smile about? <laughs> um, I mean, the back nine is obviously special. Uh, the back nine is, is a fantastic walk and it's got some, like you said, it's got that classic uh, rumpled land and huge scale. The front nine for me, I think has taken the biggest transformation and everybody's always, you know, members always want to play the back nine. But 
I love how it's it's funny as a quick aside. I I was playing the front nine. I'm like, wow, this is really good. And the person I was playing with was uh, was a former member. Yeah. And he's like, just wait till you get to the back. Just wait till. And I I'm playing the front. I'm like, oh, you keep saying this is like, yeah. this, you know. So I think like the our Eden, which is the seventh hole, the par three, and then you know you play around the lake. The cool part about the Eden is it's got a water behind the green, you know, which is as close as you're going to get to the St. Andrews estuaries in Minnesota, right? I mean, Rainer saw that and he was like, there was no other option to put the Eden there. And then you play around the lake, um, you play the no hole and then you play the cake. Epic no hole. Yeah. Epic no hole. Um, the scale of it, it's, it's really hard to capture on even in a picture. Um, and I put it up there with piping rock. It's really, really solid. Um, and it's a, it's a hole that you can make a three and you can make a six, you know, you've got a good hole when any day of the week, you know, you, you might lose your scorecard on that hole. Um, but that, those, that, that three hole stretch is really great from the front. Um, you know, and then you get to the back, obviously the Redan is a very unique Redan and I'm glad we didn't change it. We could, we could talk about that, how most Redans look like carbon copies. Ours is anything but. And, uh, you know, to stand on that green and see the skyline of downtown Minneapolis is pretty, is pretty cool. When did you first realize you could get the skyline out of the property? Like, was there, did you take down, was there one tree that came down that was like, was, oh. Yeah, the whole back nine, Andy, was, I mean, there, there's probably 1,500 trees in the back nine that, that came out to really promote that. It was, I mean, it's been a rewarding part. Um the tree removal has been a, a rewarding part, but it's been literally the hardest part of this whole process because we did 90% of it in-house and it's nonstop. You know, it, it ends, it, it starts in November and it ends in June when you get the stumps kind of grown in. So that's been the, you know, the, the kind of the heavy, heavy lifting was the tree work. This is a good topic. Uh, in-house tree removal versus contracting out. What what are the advantages of doing it in-house and what are the toughest things about doing it? Like, why do people contract it out? Well, I think the first thing is the risk, right? I mean, risk mitigation. You, anytime you're running chainsaws and wood chippers, I mean, that's, that's no joke. Yeah. So a certain amount of training needs to take place and you have to have the right um, capital to, to be able to to pull that off. Um, you have to have the patience for it too. Um, our process was kind of slow and steady every year. It was X amount of trees over X amount of years. Um, to be able to do it all at once, um, you know, it's, it's a significant investment all at once. It wasn't in the cards for us, but it also wasn't the right thing for us to do. Um, I think large scale mass removals at once can be a very scary thing that comes with, uh, some serious kickback, but if you slowly melt away the layers and layers of, of trees, um, it can kind of happen naturally over time. That was kind of what our plan was from the start. It's a, I think it's a good, it's a valid point, right? It removes some of that initial shock and backlash when it happens over a long period of time versus yeah. 
when it's just we went away for winter, haven't been to the club, and I come back and it's a completely different place. Yeah. Yep. And and that just wasn't the that wasn't gonna fit our culture. I think it was part of that process too, was for me was educational, you know, was it it was educating membership as we went along and the flat bellies that said, you know, we got to have a tree at 275 yards out on both sides. And, you know, I couldn't grow any rough underneath those trees. Once we started to remove them and they realized like, Hey, um, are you going to ever mow the rough again? You know, (laughs) those, those, those educational moments took a long time for, for everybody to kind of be touched by it in, and really recognize what was happening. Um, and it wasn't all bad. And it, and it, and I, also, I also think it's important too, Andy, to say that, you know, our scale of tree removal isn't for every club either. You know, and I don't, I don't think every club needs to be wide open and um, scaled like Midland is now. It's, it's not for everybody. I think that's one of the, you know, this is society at large. This is not a golf architecture problem, but what happens is, you know, there's this, this kind of group follow the leader think, and it's like, well, this is, this is the way we have to do it versus looking at each property design history and figuring out what the right solution is for them. You know, that, that's like the number one thing. And what I appreciate about the work that you guys did with Jim Urbina was that it was not like, Hey, we need to do what, uh, Oakmont did <laughs> and, or we need to do like, I think everybody goes to, we need to do what Cal club did. That's like the new line. Yeah. And it's like, well, like instead of trying to copy Cal club, which you're never going to do, you're never going to reach them. If you're trying to copy them, what you need to do is like, we need to do whatever we do, you know, like we have to figure out what our plan is and try and set a standard where people treat you like Cal club where we want to do what X club did. Yeah. And that goes, I think that goes back to, to, to the culture of your, of, of your club and being the best Midland Hills that we can be was our goal from the start. Yeah, we use some examples of restoration from Rainer Architecture, but beyond that, it, it it was always the goal of just being the best Midland Hills we can be and not not worry about what the Joneses are doing cuz what makes Cal Club unique is that it's Cal Club. Yeah. Um, I hear it everywhere. It's like we're trying to be like Cal Club. We're we're going to do this and we're going to be like Cal Club and it's like um like, There's only one cow club, man. Why don't you try and be yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you seen any cultural shifts at the club since you've done the work? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Definitely. Um, I think a few things. We've had a huge influx of, and now our timing was unique. So we started our restoration in 2020. So before we even started, um, with the onset of COVID, we didn't even know if we could pull the project off legally from a state standpoint. So obviously COVID brought a lot of people into the game and we've had an influx of membership, but we've um, almost overwhelmingly had new members, younger members that have come 
and are interested to join a Seth Rayner golf club, right? Everybody's got a phone. Everybody's got friedegg.com. They all can see what what's happening and, and get that exposure that really wasn't easy to get from before from, from seeing what that arc, that classic architecture is. So, um, there's definitely been a shift in people that have, have joined recently that come on day one, asking about the golf course, asking about the restoration, asking about Seth Rayner. Yeah, it's, uh, that's neat. It's, uh, it's the, I think that's the big opportunity that, that renovations present beyond just a better course for the members is the long-term, um, kind of cultural changes that they can present. You know, a lot of times I think you see more walking, you see a little bit more appreciation for the golf course, which leads to better member care for, for the course, you know, maybe less ball marks. I don't know if you see yeah, maybe. That. I mean, our greens <laughs> are so big that our ball marks get spread out. So that's I, gotta be a nice change. That is a good change. That's a, <laughs> that's a good, uh, that's a good consolation. Uh, how did you get into turf? What, what was the calculus behind, uh, becoming a, uh, superintendent? Um, probably like, like most, uh, the game of golf itself, um, had me hanging around a golf course where I grew up, but I wasn't interested in golf. My grandfather used to bring me to the golf course in the, in the summer. And I wasn't interested in, in the actual game, but I was interested in the tractors. And, uh, next thing I know, he had me picking rocks out of bunkers as a kid. And, uh, you know, they were paying me out of the till with his gambling money. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, went to school for business and almost had my business degree and decided I didn't want to live in a cube, uh, for the rest of my professional life. And my grandfather was actually the one that said, you know what, why don't you go back and and get an agronomy degree? So that's kind of, that's how it happened. That's awesome. I, I know it's been a super weird winter in the, in the Midwest, you know, I get lots of texts from my family in Chicago telling me how it's warmer than, uh, than, than in the Bay area, you know, and, uh, shouldn't have left, you know, the, the mild winters abound. Uh, what, what unique challenges does the, uh, does a mild winter, uh, present you, uh, as a superintendent where you probably, you know, it's February, you're probably used to being shut down. Nobody asking if they can come play. Yeah. Uh, I think typically if you ask somebody in the upper Midwest of, of their stress level, I think the stress level in the winter can be just as high in the winter as it is in the summer. And obviously mother nature, you can't control what happens. Um, but there are some widespread things that happen typically in Minneapolis. Um, we'll get about 50 inches of snow. I think we've had six inches maybe. Um, wow. Yeah, it's been extremely warm, very dry, um, exposed turf is exposed turf with with no snow cover is typically um, when you start worrying about desiccation, everything drying out, um, that can be pretty devastating. We've had some timely snows and some rainfalls. Luckily, the ground hasn't been frozen, so that water has gone in the ground. Um, But yesterday it was 65 and tonight slow is five degrees. So that type of temperature fluctuation is not, uh, not for the faint of heart. Um, it, uh, it causes potentially some, 
some some issues. So again, there's nothing we can do about it. We just try to educate leadership of of what's happening out there. Um, but when you have weather like we've been having, everybody thinks that they're going to play golf early, and maybe maybe they will this year. But we always seem to have like that end of March massive snow fall. Um, we might not get it into this year, but um, every winter is different. This winter is definitely out of the norm. And anything you get, anytime you get out of the norm, you get a little nervous. Um, but I try not to lose any sleep over it because there's nothing we can really do about it. Um, we just have to pivot whatever it gives us and uh, and try to execute a plan. Is there anything you do when you have that big temperature swing? Is there... Do you try and get water down? From what I understand, the turf struggles because of the the quick drying out or the lack of moisture. Like um, I remember a few years ago, I had Josh Maher on from Wild Horse, and he was talking about how he's been experimenting with how to make snow. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's something that up, up in the Sandhills of Nebraska, you know, moisture is everything, everything. for winter for them. Otherwise you have an event like they had two years ago where clubs with resources and with huge resources like Sandhills saw a, a ton of dead turf and then mom and pa's, uh, uh, golf courses devastated by this. What do you do uh, at a, a place where, you know, you, you have a lot more, you get a lot more, more moisture, but during those events, what are your kind of strategies? Well, anytime that you, like on a typical winter, I would say, Andy, you, you get a bunch of snow in January. We've had this trend where it would warm up or we'd get a rain event where you'd get ice accumulation. And ice accumulation is an event that you can actually see and then you can hit the stopwatch and, and say, okay, this is day one of potential issues. There are things you can do physically to remove that snow and to expose the ice and to try to melt it with something like you know, being dry, ex exceptionally dry and desiccation. Yeah, you could go out and water, but then you run the risk of, you know, crown hydration, which is when the turf takes the the water up and then it freezes and it eviscerates. It's like putting a can of pop in the freezer, right? And it explodes. That's, that's what happens. But the it's same thing doesn't sound good. No, it's terrible. Right. Especially <laughs> if it happens in your car, you know? So, um, and, and it's terrible and you, and it happens. It happens a lot and it forces a lot of clubs to regrass to modern bent grasses. Um, but you try to condition your turf to be as sustainable as possible. And that conditioning, I think where we grow grass, a lot of our summer conditioning is to survive winter. And when you get into a situation where we're going to have this massive 60 degree temperature fluctuation from yesterday to tonight, you do feel helpless because there's really nothing you can do. Um, there are clubs that cover greens here. Um, it's kind of a fading trend, but, you know, sometimes the covers can make it worse because they generate heat underneath the cover and you've got an artificial growing environment. So it's kind of damned if you do damned if you don't situation. Um, but it doesn't I think, sound fun. I see what you're saying about the stress level. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. There's just so many scenarios and there's so many variabilities that, that it's hard to pinpoint a lot of times where we, where you'll have, um, turf loss. 
in a in a in a way the science is more figured out of of when it's 95 and humid yes what you need to do than when it's you know cold and correct. dry correct in it in a lot of you know this a lot of um the the data collection that's been happening in in advances in technology and in turf management um those are mostly dictated towards the summer growing months um, the winter months, um, are a whole different animal. What, uh, what, uh, speaking of technology, what advances in technology are you most excited for say in the next 10 years? Um, I think the integration of technology to have a dashboard where you can go to find, um, you know, your moisture, your chlorophyll analysis, all of those things that, that can consolidate the data and put it, you know, put it on a, on a dashboard are, are extremely helpful from a developing, um, technology standpoint. I mean, obviously everybody's waiting and we've been waiting for a while for, for autonomous mowers. Um, uh, we've kind of taken two steps forward, a step back. Now it looks like we're going forward again. I mean, obviously everybody's got labor challenges. That will be fun. Um, We've had we've done a bunch of testing for that here, and uh, it looks promising. What were your big takeaways from the testing for autonomous mowers? I think it's I, I mean, obviously, it's a I think a hot topic in the industry, but also when you consider um, labor, mm-hmm. it makes the most sense uh, in terms of like where you could mitigate a lot of labor issues. Yeah, I think it's important to probably pitch it as a reallocation of labor if you do have autonomous because they still need to be babysat it's it, in some aspect um, but it allows you to focus your labor down the middle right down the corridors and you know maybe you can repetitively do some detailed things that um, your golfers really appreciate you know, whether it's edging sprinklers to filling all the fairway divots, whatever those time consuming things might be, you know, autonomous is going to be able to reallocate the labor to, to really not just do the bare minimum, but to maybe do a little extra. Those things will be, uh, will be exciting. Mm-hmm. Were, were you testing fairways, roughs or both? Fairways, um, mostly fairways. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenges with fairways obviously is, is, um, the scale, right? The scale of mowing 30 to 50 acres or how many acres of fairways you have. Um, and typically it takes three to five mowers. So you, you've got a lot of labor tied up for four or five hours in the day. Um, but if a stick falls in the fairway or somebody's balls in the fairway, you know, all those things still have to be managed by a human. So, um, it's also job security. Mm-hmm. From what I've gathered, like the aspirational job on the crew is the fairway mower. That's like what you work <laughs> up to. Um, and, and like seniority is the guy riding the fairway mower. That has to be a big shift, right? Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, if I think about our staff, our, our highest skilled uh, fairway mower who mows our cleanup passes. I mean, we always say he's, he was born out of Toro. Um, 
he can mow a laser beam like nobody can. And in cleanups from a presentation standpoint, from our, our part of our restoration is a huge part. I mean, our cleanup passes, I, I, I probably used 10 cases of turf paint every year painting our cleanup passes on our fairways, which 10 years ago, I wouldn't have even thought about that. You know, I was painting cleanups on greens. So yeah, um, he's never going to want to give that up. <laughs> what what would you, if you could remove one expectation from golf course maintenance, what would it be in terms of golfer expectation? If there's one thing you could, you're, you're the czar of golf and you could wave yeah. your wand and, and nobody asks for this anymore, what would it be? Um, probably comparing clubs to clubs, right? The comparison to the Cal <laughs> club. We go right back to this, right? <laughs> Why are uh, our greens as fast as so-and-so's exactly. greens? Yeah, yeah. Um, cause everybody plays in guest days and member guests and, and, uh, and everybody amps up their own golf course for those events. So then the expectations are you go play XYZ club and their greens were, you know, rock star status, but that was a, you know, that was just like the, a PGA tour stop. I mean, they don't, most places it's just, that's a snippet of, uh, what their normal conditionings are. So yeah, comparing apples to apples is almost impossible because every club is different. Um, yeah, I, it always gets me. I, I get people like I'll play and it's like a hot day and they'll like apologize about the greens being slower. And I'm like, honestly, I'm really happy they're slow because I probably would like the golf course more at this speed than if you had them ramped up out of this world fast, because then I'd just be like, this is kind of silly. You know, you, you've got four pin uh, a whole locations on the screen when you could have 10, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it goes, yeah, absolutely. It goes back to the culture of the club too, right. Of, of, um, embracing that a golf course changes every day throughout the day. And that's the beauty of this game is that you play on a field that, that changes and it could change from the front end to the back nine. And there's no reason to, to apologize for, you know, a mucky, humid day where you, you can't get enough gold bond, the greens are going to are going to be sticky. I one of the things that I think is crazy, and Stephen Britton, uh, superintendent at the Chevy Chase Club, uh, brought this up. But why why do we need to have the same um, firmness across all the greens? Like uh, trying to achieve the same firmness on a on a green that's in the corner, that's in shade all morning, is that's insanity to try and strive to get the same firmness as say your no hole that sits way up in the air is exposed to sun all day, and also when you go for this like homogeneous um condition, it removes some of what you should want, which is local knowledge member oh this green i remember as a kid it always, oh this green's always wet i need to control my spin a little bit here or this green this this green's always a little bit slower and these were the things part of the the aspects that made up a great home course advantage yeah and i don't understand with like the way maintenance has gone in a lot of ways and some architecture with like flattening greens for higher green speeds. What all you're doing is you're removing your 
home course advantage, which historically has been like a huge part of golf. Like if you go all the way back, it was like, oh, you have to go play the you have to go beat the parks in a challenge match at uh, at Muscleboro. You know, I think that's where they played. Um, If I if I mess that up, I apologize to the hundred historians (laughs) that know that they'll correct you. Yeah. Or you have to go play old Tom Morris at, at, at the old course, right? Like that was always the, the premise of the sport was this great. And all we're doing, it seems like is chasing our tails to make every golf course the same, which is just irrational to me. And I always think courses and food and restaurants are a great comparison. And if this was the strive of restaurants across the country, to make everything the same. Yeah. People will be like throwing a fit and it seems like golfers are embracing it. Yeah. Yeah. They wouldn't, they wouldn't digest the product. I think it, it, again, it goes back to the culture of, uh, thinking somehow we've found our way to think that these things should all be the same. Um, I mean, my grandfather's hero was Ben Hogan and Ben Hogan was always like, you know, what separates the good players from the best is their ability to adapt to the conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we go as far as bunkering and people think bunker sand on the north side of green and the south side of the green should play the same. I mean, it's it's physically impossible. But I also think that, and this isn't a dig, but I think that, you know, when you look at golf courses and restorations these days and renovations, we do have you know, um, a monastan of turf that literally looks perfect from an aesthetical standpoint, it looks perfect. And to our detriment, um, our ability to train our staff and for them to execute our maintenance programs at such a high level, um, you don't need a PGA tour stop to look that way. We've got a ton of them in town. And they look absolutely perfect. And I think that with that comes, you know, you lose a little bit of that rubber embracing rub of the rub of the green. It you you expect perfection because it looks perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I um I think that's obviously and I think the general trends of restoration, and I think part of it is just the the amazing advances that have happened with turf grass. Yeah. You know, and the advantages that these new grasses present has also eroded some of the wonderfulness that the old school patina of 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 worn in grass presents. Yeah. And and, you know, for us, we we weren't we weren't interested in regrassing. We wanted to keep the patina. Um, I mean, we actually flipped sod on tee boxes to keep it old. I mean, Urbina is so old school. He wanted us to cut our bunker faces off and 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 put that grass back on the new bunkers um, because you do lose some of that patina. And that's not to say that um, you can't have a classic golf course that still looks classic if it's regrassed. But also the infra, you know the the infrastructures that we're investing in. I mean, some of the numbers that clubs are spending are almost unattainable, but it, it is getting them closer and closer to providing a product or at least expecting that the product is going to be pretty damn similar every single day. 
but it's the pursuit of perfection is it's it's so fleeting and it's impossible to obtain other than a quick minute um but there's a lot of us that are pretty good at getting there all right let's get you out of here on a few quick questions um what is your favorite uh golf course outside of midland to go visit in minneapolis area uh minneapolis area um Minicata. What's what's the superior Twin City, Minneapolis or Saint Paul, <laughs> and why? I think, I think I think most people in Minneapolis don't know Saint Paul exists, and the people <laughs> in Paul want to keep it that way. And I and I concur. Um, I live on the west side, but I work on the east side, and um, it, there is a uh, a fantastic dynamic to. Uh, to St. Paulers wanting to keep the Minneapolis people on that side of the river. Favorite off season activity, winter activity. Uh, probably music. Yeah. Music. Music. Yep. What's the next show? Uh, next show is uh vampire weekend. Oh yeah. yeah they haven't played in a long time either. So they're I know. To- yeah. They're playing at the Greek in in, uh, in, San- in Berkeley. And I'm unfortunately going to be at the U S open. I was super bummed out. Like yeah. you talk, great band historic historic venue and uh i am not gonna be here sadly um what um what do you have a just a, a music rack i uh, one band that you've been listening to that maybe people haven't heard of or maybe it's a retread that you should re-listen to uh that's a good question i think um i've been listening to this band uh called jungle okay and jungle is probably um I don't know. Give give them a listen. You probably haven't heard Jungle, but okay. Uh, I'm I, I'm gonna I'm I got it on Spotify now. All right, gonna I'll cue it up uh, right after we're done talking. So love, love it. All right, thank you, Mike, and uh, I really appreciate your time, and look forward to seeing you hopefully this uh, this summer in the, in the Twin Cities. Absolutely. Hopefully not in an empty parking lot. All right, thank you for listening to another episode of the Friday Golf Podcast. And big thanks to Meg Atkins for another wonderful ed- edit. Thank you, Meg. Um, as a quick reminder, one of the things that Meg works on a ton is the Friday Pro Shop. That's proshop.thefriday.com. Uh, there you can find a wide array of, uh, of new gear. We've got that thing stocked. I think we're starting to head into spring. Uh, I'm starting to see some trees uh, blooming here on the West Coast. I know you're only a couple weeks away, Midwest and uh, in Northeast, and you've had unseasonable, uh, unseasonably warm weather. So start to think about spring, start to think about golf season. Check out the Pro Shop, proshop.thefriedegg.com. And thanks for listening to another episode of the Friday Golf Podcast. We'll be back next week with a, uh, we got a top 50 player in the world coming on. Uh, so that will be out on Monday at some point Monday, probably Monday afternoon, but, uh, thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week.